Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, William Hoagland, author of Autumn of the Black Snake. William Hoagland, author of Autumn of the Black Snake, The Creation of the U.S. Army and the Invasion that Opened the West. Where'd you come up with that title that sounds so sinister? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the Black Snake, uh, Autumn of the Black Snake, I give it away late in the book. The Black Snake is General Anthony Wayne. He was called that by his, his indigenous enemy uh, in kind of grudging respect because they said he never sleeps. And they thought the black snake, the actual black snake of nature, the animal, didn't sleep. So it was kind of a grudging compliment. And his invasion took place in the end. He was held up so long it took place in the fall. So that's the autumn of the black snake. The subtitle, you know, I've really tried to figure out what the subtitle should be. You always do struggle over the subtitle. And uh, it's, um, it's, the it's an invasion. I think that's important to underscore. This was an invasion. The creation of the army occurred in an invasion that actually did become, that took over what became what is now, has ever since been kind of the American Midwest. So it opened up the Western expansion of the United States. But it took an invasion to do that, not sort of a diplomatic process or just sort of natural course of things. So that's sort of the purpose of the subtitle there. So there was no U.S. Army before this? There was no nationally run, like federally run army of any significance or any size. Uh, there was actually a lot of opposition to forming a national army. Um, people think of the Continental Army as the first, you know, sort of United States Army, the one that won the, the revolution. Um, but actually, that, that army was disbanded officially, and it was a creature of the Continental Congress. When the Continental Congress was replaced by the federal government of the United States, a national government, um, well, some people like George Washington thought we really needed an army run from the top down, as every nation state tends to have, and other people actually really objected to the idea of the United States ever having a full-time, sort of professional, nationally run military force. So what was the opposition to it? There's a long-standing tradition uh, of, and sort of in Whig thought of the kind of liberty thinking that went into the revolution itself, that standing armies, as they called them, um, are tools of monarchy, tools of tyranny. A uh, professional full-time army existing even in peacetime becomes, in this line of thought, uh, just a tool of oppression because the, it, they're, they're hirelings, they're, they're hired, they're doing it for pay, usually filled by what people thought of as the dregs of society. The soldiery is just at the beck and call of the monarch and can be used against the citizenry at any time or used for irresponsible war-making and adventuring in foreign lands. So there was a general sense throughout many years of American history before the Revolution, and there was a long American history before the Revolution, the colonial history, there was a general sense that standing armies, professional armies, are bad and contrary to liberty, and that the only really legitimate defense of a free people is in militia. The, the armed 
population, the armed male free white population of majority age uh, who, are, who are sort of called up to defend in times of trouble and then disband back to their normal lives in when, when the conflict is over and are unpaid. It's an obligation of citizenship. That was the line of thought that Washington and others had to confront when they wanted to create a national force. Did any states have standing militias? Well, it gets complicated, actually. That's a really key question, because the states did not have standing armies either. They had militias, and the militias, you know, it's, it's sort of like the militia is actually just the citizenry, is one way of looking at it, um, ready to act at any time. So they did have regular drills and musters. Um, they did have officer, they had officers and hierarchies like armies. I mean, they really were kind of armies. But it was, it was an unpaid thing, and it was sort of an obligation of citizenship in that colony at that time before the revolution in the province. But of course, this starts to get complicated right away, because when the British army, say, wants to do an adventure somewhere or gets, gets involved in a war somewhere in, on the North American continent, well, if they're at war with France in North America, they're going to want to call up. The, the, the British army is going to come to North America to fight that war, but they're going to want to call up local support as well. And when they do, they recruit, it was a, the term might be like re recruit from the militia, meaning recruit a more hired army out of the normal obligated militia. And then they were paying these people, and they were taking them far away from home. Um, and so there was always, when Washington said the militia, he didn't just mean the local sort of militias and the state militias that defend it. He meant the whole idea of recruiting on and off from a generally untrained, unmanaged population as a way of fighting wars, and he was dead set against it. He was pushing for a standing army from the beginning? Yeah, even during the Revolution, he was very unhappy. He wrote letters to the Continental Congress just saying, this, this militia system, and he meant the whole thing. Like He meant recruit us, even the states recruiting from the populace. It just isn't working. I mean, they're insubordinate. You know, they, they, ha they had traditions of electing their own officers up to a certain rank, not all the way up. Um, and so if they got orders they didn't like, they would just, you know, elect new officers and sometimes just leave. They were also, you know, he felt poorly trained and therefore encountering uh, combat situations. They would often just throw down their guns and run away. All of this goes counter to a major American theme of, of belief that existed then and exists today, that, that what won the revolution was the, you know, the armed citizen soldier of the militia. Washington, for one, and he wasn't alone, really felt that that was, he felt actually that the militia came close to losing the revolution. So he was pushing for a standing army like really early on. You mean the, the, the story of the uh, individual volunteer militia winning the war isn't true? Um, well, Washington certainly thought it wasn't true, and he made some very good arguments, I would say. Um, and I think the record, in the end, does bear that out. I think he had gr they, they had great difficulty mobilizing that force in an efficient way. Of course, the war was won, and it was won partly by the, Continental, the regular force of Continental Army, which was a regular army that did get disbanded at the end of the war, but while it was going on, it was a regular army. And of course, with great, great assistance from foreign armies um, and foreign help, you know, from the French, for example. I mean, specifically from the French. I mean, and then, of course, the uh, Baron von Steuben with his, his drill manual and so forth. I mean, Washington had to really rely on this European-style expertise even while he was in the process of trying to kick out uh, one of the, the greatest European-style army, perhaps, of the time, the British Army. Now, th this is your fourth time on the program, and all your books have been about either the Revolutionary War era or immediately after the founding of the Republic. What is it about that aspect of history that keeps you writing about it? I just find the origin, the, you know, the, the creation myths, the origin stories, 
I, I just feel like everything we're dealing with is somehow, I can't say exactly how, but must be sort of embedded there or coded there in embryo. You know, like, how did all this start? And so I'm fascinated both by um, the creation myths, the things that we tend to believe that aren't really true on examination, and the more sort of, I don't know, fertile, seething truths that also seem very seem really more relevant to me than some of the myths. So I just keep I have I have kept being drawn back to that period. So this book, uh, when does it take place and where? Well, the main action takes place between 1791 and 1795. I would say that four-year period, um, where you know, and it, it's largely set um, in it's it's partly set in Philadelphia, which was the national cat temporary capital at the time. And it's also set in what was considered the West, which today we don't think of as the West because we're talking about basically starting at the headwaters of the Ohio River around Pittsburgh. And then that was really the gateway to what was considered then the American West, it was considered the American West by the United States. The people who lived there considered it their own land. But uh, so it's set out there, which is modern day Ohio, Illinois. Um, and really, the impact stretches to Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, et cetera. It's, the, it's what's today the Midwest. So there's a lot of back and forth between the politics in Philadelphia of the United States trying to form an army or trying to oppose forming an army and so forth, what goes on in Congress, and the actual action on the military action on the ground in the West. You, you say in your book that Pittsburgh was originally pronounced Pittsburgh? Yeah, I believe it was. I, I, I think a lot of burgs in those days were pronounced borough. Like it's a much more, if you go to the sort of the English-sounding pronunciation or Scottish-sounding pronunciations, you get that borough sound instead well, of Well, Edinburgh, Scotland exactly. is pronounced, spelled the same way. Exactly. Where'd exactly. you find that? I can't remember, but I know I documented it somewhere in those <laughs> notes. <laughs> but right here under the pressure of the cameras, I can't remember the source for that. So the, the part that is considered the West is the Northwest Territory? Yeah, it was is known to the U.S. as the Northwest Territory. Is that... The U.S.'s land following the Revolutionary War? It was ceded by Great Britain as part of the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War in 1783. It was ceded by Great Britain to the United States, which was still then, by the way, not the national United States we know. This is 1783. There's no constitution yet. This, so it was ceded essentially to the Continental Congress of the United States. So from the U.S. point of view, through that, diplomat, that warfare and then diplomatic process, it was the U.S. had sovereignty in that region which is the Ohio Valley and sort of then all the way out to the Mississippi and all the way up to the Great Lakes. Uh, that's the area which had to be fought over, uh, and that's the story I tell in the book. There were British forts in U.S. territory at the time then. Yes. Why didn't they leave? Yeah, well, in the end they did, of course, as we know, because Detroit is no longer a British fort. <laughs> but uh, uh, they didn't leave because there was, there was, great re uh, there was a recalcitrance on both sides about um, fulfilling the terms of that treaty, the 1783 treaty that ended, that ended the war. Um, and so there was a process for evacuating the, the British forts, which were now on what was nominally U.S. soil, but didn't, couldn't really become U.S. soil until the British Army left. There was a process written into the treaty for how that should be accomplished. But there were also some obligations on the uh, U.S. side having to do with um, debts and, and, and repaying debts to merchants, that uh, British merchants and so forth, that were all supposed to be worked out. And both sides kind of stalled on their obligations. The British had this kind of interesting upper hand in that way, where they're like, well, as soon as 
their excuse was, as soon as you do what you're supposed to do under this, you know, perform, perform under the contract sort of, then we'll do it. But they really actually didn't want to give up. I mean, some people in the British government, the British Army, didn't want to give up those forts at all and had a dream of potentially never giving up Detroit or Niagara and retaining, really in a way, possibly getting back some of what had been legally ceded in that treaty. Were they at Presque Isle also? Uh, the British were not at, th there was a whole argument about Presque Isle, but at the time I'm writing about, the British were not on Presque Isle. You see me looking upward trying to remember <laughs> the details of this. Uh, but the British were not at Presque Isle at this time. There was another argument about Presque Isle that's sort of interesting between whether it was uh, between Washington and the, and, and the governor of Pennsylvania, but uh, that's a separate issue. Your book starts with a, a dramatic scene of the death of General Butler and, the, and a, a, a clash between... U.S. soldiers and, and Indians. Can you talk about that and how that fits into the rest of the picture? Yeah, the main story, the main action of my book begins with that battle in 1791, late 1791. It was already turning winter. It was November, uh, in which uh, General Arthur Sinclair, a famous Pennsylvanian as well, uh, led, led U.S. troops. This is before there was really the professional National Army. They had cobbled together militia, short-term recruits, and, so, and a very skeletal uh, uh, professional army to, to, to invade that territory and finally establish U.S. sovereignty there in, in, uh, over and against the wishes of the nations who lived there, worked there, hunted there, and did their business there, the indigenous people. So Sinclair uh, led his troops into a classic ambush uh, and suffered a terrible, terrible defeat. I mean, the first real attempt uh, of, the, of the U.S. to assert itself militarily as a nation uh, coincided, I mean, the nation had just formed right when he was, right when he was making this move. Um, it, was, it was a terrible defeat. Uh, it was not only humiliating, it was actually just sort of uh, grotesquely devastating in terms of casualties and so forth. So, I mean, this was, uh, this was, this was a decisive, I think, historical moment in American history that's largely overlooked because, for one thing, it was the greatest victory. We talk about it, the U.S. people talk about it as a defeat, but it was actually a thrilling victory for the indigenous enemy who actually succeeded in virtually wiping out the, what had passed at that time for the entire U.S. Army in what would historically turn out to be the greatest victory of indigenous people over any U.S. troops anywhere in the history of all the Indian Wars. Um, in fact, overwhelmingly more kept more U.S. casualties than in any other action of the kind. Um, so it seems strange to me that we don't know about it. It was truly decisive on, it seemed truly decisive on both sides. Is there a name for that battle? Well, you can call it Sinclair's defeat, but like, uh, it doesn't, I mean, uh, Colin Calloway recently wrote a book, I think he, I don't remember what he called it, the, the, the victory with no name, or the battle with no name, or the defeat with no name. And similarly, the whole war that I'm writing about that emerged from that battle doesn't have a name either. The, the conquest of what is today the Midwest, which drove the future of America. I mean, that Midwest very quickly became the industrial driver of American power, and yet the war to get it um, doesn't really have a name either. Because everybody knows about Custer's defeat, so why don't people know about this? That's the million dollar question. I mean, it's really fascinating to me that people don't, because Custer's defeat was like nothing compared to this in terms of casualties and in terms of historical wheel turnings. I mean. The thing I'm writing about here was a huge world historical wheel. I mean, the U.S. got an army, which we still have. People may notice that we still have one. It has grown from what happened right in the time I'm talking about. So why don't we know about this? I mean, I leave that question kind of somewhat open. Um, yeah, it's the big one. What were St. Clair and, and uh, 
Butler doing there? What, what was their goal? How many soldiers did they have? What were they trying to accomplish? They had hundreds of soldiers. I mean, it was the, the casualties were somewhere in the 900 to 1,000 range in a couple of hours in the morning. They brought um, not only soldiers, but also, uh, you know, Wagon, civilians, wagon drivers, and contractors, and all the stuff that goes along with an army. And including that, they brought uh, you know wives and girlfriends and children and even babies. This was something that just went on in warfare at that time. So the total casualties go up possibly up to twelve hundred or so. So the total numbers I don't exactly have, but that they wiped that was they wiped out at that uh, most of the force that way, and including the civilians, including were, the women and children. Were they planning on making settlements, or did they, they have targets to attack? Creating a building a fort, basically building a strong fort, establishing sovereignty by by defeating what they considered to be a kind of what they presented to Congress anyway as a sort of a renegade small bunch of uh, you know we're going to mop up the Indian problem. This was their idea: build a fort, create respect on the part of the enemy, and just take over this territory. Ultimately, for the purpose, yes, of uh, of settlement and of protecting actually already existing settlements that were there. What did George Washington think of Indians? That's a really good question. Um, that's a really good question. I don't. I don't have a great sense of his general sense of Indianness. He knew Indians. This is one of the strange things about this story: is that all the all the people trying to take over this land, all the white people, thought of thought they talked about the land as if it was uninhabited or open for settlement and so forth. But for years, George Washington, he knew, he did, he did diplomacy as president with, with Indians. He had been out there. He was one of the few white people who had actually spent a lot of time out in the West. Indians were not by no means unknown to him uh, or to many of the other people who sort of saw the land as uninhabited and ripe for the plucking. What he thought of them as a race, I don't have a great sense of that. He, he respected, certainly, uh, the Indian ability to surprise attack. Uh, he, he, had, he had experienced that in battle himself in the Seven Years' War, we call the French and Indian War. He was at the banks of the Monongahela in Braddock's defeat uh, during that war, and he knew how, how powerful they could be as a force. So I think in that sense, he had respect for their military capacities to surprise. I don't think he saw, I mean, there's no way Washington saw indigenous people as, as enjoying a, cult a, a culture a political culture, a human culture of, of the kind of complexity and even to him I'd say legitimacy that he saw the European descended culture in America as being and the European cultures as. You say in your book that almost his last words to St. Clair as he was going out the door on this was don't be surprised, don't yeah. let yourself be surprised. His last words to St. Clair as St. Clair took off for that battle in which he was badly surprised was were beware a surprise. He said you know how they fight us, you know what they do, beware a surprise. And Sinclair just didn't fortify his camp and was surprise attacked, which sent Washington into, when he learned the news, you know, the news comes of this awful defeat, this, and they, there's no army left, really. Washington just went into a total uh, meltdown, temper tantrum, to, to dwarf anything else he ever did by way of just of losing his temper. I mean, he just was throwing his arms around in the air and screaming down curses, the curse of heaven on Sinclair's head. Um, it was just because he said he was saying I told him <laughs> it's like that thing like you have one job you know beware a surprise the, and that's what Sinclair blew I'll say one other thing about how he looked at Indians though how Washington did I don't think he and a lot of his, com his compatriots at that time understood that it wasn't just Sinclair's screwing up it was also a tactically brilliant 
victory on the part of the indigenous enemy, led by Blue Jacket and Little Turtle, among others. And so I don't think he could give, I don't think he or even Sinclair or many others could give the enemy that kind of respect. It was a screw up on the US side, as far as they were concerned, not a tactically perfectly ex uh, um, executed victory on the, on the Indian side. Did Sinclair survive? He did, he survived. He wrote a report. He survived and he actually retained his, his position, not as military commander, uh, he was eased out of that by some of Washington's most classic sort of adroit, tough, like that's not, we're not going to go on with this. Um, but uh, he did survive and, sur and, his, and he survived also as, as governor of the Northwest Territory. Some of your book is the lead up to this story and, and you talk about uh, what was going on in Western Pennsylvania and Virginia's claim on Western Pennsylvania and you talk about George Washington as a land speculator at a yeah. fairly young age. Yeah. How would one be a land speculator at that time? Well, you, you made claims to land, uh, basically, uh, and he, he very early on, I mean, what, the, the way that George Washington came into his own, really, as a, as a man in Virginia society, you know, he, he came from some disadvantage in the sense that he'd been effectively disinherited or lesser inherited on behalf of his older half-brothers, and really, he didn't have much of a future uh, in the society in which he was raised as an elite planter Virginian. So... He ended up making his own way very much by becoming a, sort of an errand boy for the rich families, and they were looking for land, western land, west of the Appalachians in the Shenandoah Valley, and then across the, you know, acro across the Ohio into what became the west, the west northwest territory. Very early on, starting in really the late 1740s, 1750s, there was this move to get a hold of that, to invest in it. To, to own it, sort of, in a, because they knew that was going to be incredibly val valuable. It was incredibly fertile, uh, and the, the planter class saw the value of land. Uh, it, was the, it was the natural resource. It was like trying to get a monopoly on oil or uh, nowadays or something like that. Um, so, or, you know, internet in bandwidth or whatever. Like, it was, it was, the, it was like, like the railroads. It was a huge monopolistic attempt to get a hold of that stuff and keep, keep that value in the hands of a, of a small group of people. And Washington came up in that world. But he didn't, he wasn't really a member of the elites that he'd been raised in. He was really a sort of a servant class guy for those, an upper servant. I mean, he went, he physically went out there and looked around and drew maps and got a sense of what it was really like on the ground because he was so big, so strong, and so fearless. Um, and he also very shrewdly then, as he began to get, a, get paid for this work as a surveyor, really, he, um, he began to make his own investments as well and very quickly became very land rich. Um, in spec it's sort of in a speculative way, like for that to pay off, you have to have buyers. Uh, for that to pay off, you have to have security. You have to have the Indians' situation being under control and all kinds of things that were, uh, plus you had, to have, you had to fight the fact that the British government was trying to keep all these uh, American speculators from doing all this sort of intrusive moving across the, acro in, across the mountains into the West. So he, there are a lot of obstacles that Washington had to overcome from the British to the Indians to uh, the fact that, you know, the fact that it was perilous out there. Did Washington still have land claims out in that area, Western Pennsylvania, that, that uh, when he was president? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, Washington spent a great deal of time all his life, but once he got into this land thing in his teens, right through his life till the day he died, actually, um, much, much of his time was spent on managing his investments, Buying, selling, giving orders to how his plantations should be run. I mean, he spent a, a huge amount of time, and fo his his obsessive focus was that really. And yeah, while he was president, he was running his own businesses. Yes, 
Um, and no one really at that time would have seen that, I think, as untoward or inappropriate. Um, it gets pretty interesting when he's actually forming an army to invade a place in which an area to create security in which he has personal investments and everybody he knows, his entire social class and entire cohort, have major investments there as well. Uh, that gets pretty interesting. We also, it's a little off the subject, but it is in your book about Vandalia Colony and how if, if that had been established, it would have wiped out all the land claims of the Washington and his friends? Yeah, before the revolution, and really largely a cause of revolution, I think, um, the British government was trying to find ways. They kept trying to find ways to stop this, this what they thought of this incorrigible impulse on the part of these American, uh, the, the small class of American investors, not only in Virginia, but also in Pen Western Pennsylvania, in, in Pennsylvania and other places, North Carolina, to like keep going into Indian country and making these kind of private deals with certain groups of Indians and, 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 and avoiding normal imperial diplomatic process. So they kept trying to find ways to prevent that and, and push back. And there were a number of schemes. It was chaotic. I mean, the ministry was at least as, was more chaotic possibly on this issue than, than even the Americans were. I mean, they had a million schemes for trying to stop American uh, sort of this free-for-all. Uh, Why did they want to stop it? Well, the, in, the, uh, the, the Indian trade in fur and other things, but largely in fur, was critically important uh, to the British government. And the British government ran its operations, you know, imperially in a mercantile way. Like, they, they, they thought their colonies were there to support the imperial project, as their, like their colonies on the other side of the world, and sort of create markets and get raw materials and control trade and all that kind of stuff. And here are these Americans suddenly saying, you know, the fur trade's great, and we're in the fur trade, but we also want to settle this area, which means cutting down trees on a massive scale. I mean, look at Ohio today. You know, where's that deep forest? There was a deep forest, you know. Um, so this was, this was disturbing the fur trade, disturbing the Indians. And then the, the British also wanted control of how, like if we are going to expand, and many British people want, were also invested in expanding, well, let's do it in an organized way. This is the crown, so this is crown sovereign territory, according to Britain. It had been ceded by France to Britain at the end of the French and Indian War. So we can't have these Americans just making their own deals with some random Indians that they find out there. We have to have diplomatic process for this. This is sovereign territory. Well, the Americans began to develop a theory of sovereignty, really, in this context. Jefferson uh, had, this, had this theory of sovereignty that was like, no, it's not, it's not crown sovereign territory. It's open, sort of virgin territory, and it's a critically important part of uh, the liberty of English people um, that they be able to move into uninhabited territory, and if it's uninhabited, then you can take it, and you don't hold that at the sort of behest of some monarch. It's yours. You hold that freehold. A lot of our ideas about liberty that went right into July 4th and right into the revolution came from this conflict between speculators in land, elite speculators in land from Virginia, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere, and the British government. Who were the Indians who were living in that territory at the time that these speculators were claiming ownership of? Many different nations uh, were there, um, and they had very complicated politics as well. And sometimes when we talk about Indians versus white people, it gets pretty simplified. Uh, whichever side you want to take, you, you know, it gets pretty simplified. But there were many nations with claims there, and those claims also conflicted, conflicted with other indigenous nations' claims. So there's a whole political story there that I try to give a glimpse of in the book and try to give some, put some meat back on those bones. But uh, we're talking in terms of the major leaders of resistance to 
the American move that direction. Shawnee, for sure. Miami, uh, some, some branches and, and parts of the Miami and others were more in favor, were, more, were allying with the Americans. So again, it gets complicated. Delaware, uh, very powerful force there. Um, and then, of course, there are the further Western Indians, like Kickapoo and so forth, who are interested in, even though they're further west and maybe not as immediately under threat, they can see the writing on the wall as well. Obviously, if, if the U.S. has began to establish sovereignty, you know, just, just west of the Ohio River, they're going to keep going. They're claiming, the, the U.S. is claiming the whole thing. So many different nations, but the, in the book, because the resistance was so largely led by Shawnee, Delaware, and Miami, I focus mostly on them. But there's also the, I just want to add, the Six Nations claims as well. Uh, further to the east, you have the Iroquois, the Six Nations, first the Five Nations, later the Six Nations. They don't live there so much. Some do. But they, also, they claim that as theirs as well, as their yeah. uh, hunting area and places to move other indigenous nations that they were displacing. So they, they, had, they had been very powerful uh, in terms of dis determining what happened in what in that area for a long time, but now with the Western, the Western nations beginning to fight back against the, the U.S. and having successes, you begin to get a sort of waning of the Six Nations hegemony over the Western nations. The Western nations start saying, we're doing this, and you guys, you know, you seem to be a little on the fence. We need you to support us or tell us where, you are, where you're at with this. So you begin to get a lot of really tense politics on the Indian side about, around this war as well. Well, I think the phrase is from your book. Were, were the, the British were fighting a surrogate war against the United States using the Indians to do their fighting? Is that yeah, accurate? Yeah, uh, that was what they were trying to do. The British were still in those, this now we're after the revolution and now the, the U.S. has formed as a nation and Washington is fighting to get his, his standing army or his professional army and they're going to invade the West and really take it. Um, the British are really trying to um, stay in those forts. And one of their plans is to create a kind of a buffer zone where the native peoples allied with the British get to kind of stay there. Um, and they wouldn't necessarily have sovereignty. They'd be there sort of with the British protecting them, a kind of buffer zone between, say, somewhere between the Ohio River headwaters, the Ohio River, and the lakes. So there'd be the idea would be from the British point of view, well, we'll just get to stay in these forts forever and not ever really give them up because the Indians will be asking us for protection and we'll sort of maintain a kind of, I don't know, DMZ or sort of a uh, no man's land or something um, in which it's U.S. territory per the treaty, but we're now accommodating the Indians and so we have to stay in these forts. And to that end, they were actually supplying uh, Blue Jacket, Little Turtle and the others, uh, the others who were resisting U.S. incursion up to a point. The British were supplying them up to a point as With often weapons? happens. Uh, yeah, with weapons, for sure, and with food, um, clothing, you know, necessary supplies. Um, but as happens in proxy wars, a lot of times uh, they aren't, they, they're afraid to be seen really fully fighting this war because then, you know, that treaty of 1783 could become moot and we could go back to war again. So they were always supplying up to a point and yet not ultimately supplying the weaponry that their clients, as they saw the Indians, uh, would have needed for specifically artillery. They wouldn't give them artillery and artillery troops uh, because then the British would, would be sort of visibly in, at war again with the United States. Now, as with your other appearances on this program, we are going to run out of time before we have a chance to more than scratch the surface. But I want to ask about a few people um, yeah. that are intriguing. Alexander McKee, is he the 
McKee, McKee's Rocks is named after? Yes, he is the McKee's. McKee's Rocks is named after. Um, McKee's Port is actually named after a different McKee, which is interesting. But yeah, McKee is a fascinating Pennsylvanian, uh, fascinating American, a fascinating British administrator, and a fascinating Shawnee, all rolled into one guy. I mean, this guy was a uh, he was a very, he kind of exemplifies the fact that unlike what we normally think of as sort of frontier life, where, the, you know, there's Indians and there's white people, and then it kind of goes like push, push, push. Uh, it was much more complicated socially, um, genetically. Th there was much more mixing than we, than we like to think, and that had gone on for a long time. And McKee's mother was Shawnee, although, I mean, that's how she identified, I would say. She was raised Shawnee, but I, th I think she was a, a white woman kidnapped as a baby and raised Shawnee, but she always spoke Shawnee. She raised her son, Alexander Shawnee. So some people say, well, he wasn't really Shawnee, but then you get into these questions about, well, what is really Shawnee or what is really white? And with him, it was sort of like, he was all, he was everything. And for a long time throughout the 1760s, he was able to sort of, and into the 70s, actually, he was able to manage all of these competing groups um, around the headwaters of the Ohio where he lived. Um, and yet at the same time, at some point, you know, he, he ran out of, of options. He couldn't really manage it anymore. So that he was, he was very much an American, very much a Pennsylvanian. But he felt that he wasn't, you know, when the, when the revolution came, he felt that he was, you know, loyal to his existing principles, loyal to his Shawnee family and allies because the Americans were trying to push them out. So he, was, he wasn't going to put up with that. And the, and the only bulwark against American pushing against into the West what had been the British government. So he was suddenly faced with a contradiction, having managed all these people for a long time and made himself like very important to the whole life of that area, for, to every different competing group. He finally had to run, basically. He, he bolted out of, out, of, out of the Pittsburgh area and ran to the fort in Detroit and became reviled by his former friends in Pennsylvania who were revolutionaries. Now he became just the worst and the stories about him just became, I mean, he was, he was very committed to, to fighting the Americans now. But the story, he became just a villain in the minds of people who earlier had been his friends and allies. And yet they named McKee's Rocks after him? It's, it rem the, name remem the name was preserved, I mean, uh, somehow. Yeah, I don't, they didn't change, that's interesting. I, I never ran down, like, why didn't they just change the name and sort of erase him from history? But he hasn't been erased at all. Um, he's, still, he's still memorialized, at least in the name of that that place. Now we have barely mentioned Anthony Wayne, if we've mentioned him at all. Where, when does he come into the picture? Yeah, he doesn't enter my book until chapter seven, even though he's the guy who really brings it to its climax. Um, Anthony Wayne is an overlooked, I mean, he was the first American general to have a victory, and it was the victory that turned, we just talked about Sinclair's defeat, Wayne's victory turned Sinclair's defeat around, um, and really established the settlement, the settlement possibilities of what became the Midwest. So it again is stunning to me that he's largely overlooked in the history of great American generals. Um, he was a fascinating personality, not so different from some other American generals, irascible, um, hard to control sometimes, um, impatient, doggedly persistent uh, as a military man, but kind of a screw-up in the rest of his life. I mean, in, in, in civilian life, he really just wanted to become rich after the revolution and become a planter. He, he was a Chester County man, uh, Chester County roots and a Chester County farmer, who then decided he wanted to get rich in rice in, in the South and went down and tried to become a big slave driving plantation owner and completely failed. 
Um, and so he ends up getting his appointment as the, as the commander of this brand new army and have, has to build this army from scratch at a point when he'd just been thrown out of Congress for election fraud. I mean, it's a real turnaround in his career, uh, becoming the head of this army. So why was he chosen to head the army? If he That's was another million dollar question. Kicked out of Congress in disgrace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, um, was he friends with George Washington? They had been. Uh, Washington had commanded him in the Revolution. Uh, he came up sort of as a as a general, as, as a as an officer under Washington's command in the Revolution, and he always wanted to be commanded directly by Washington. This was always what he wanted. He was under Sinclair's command in the Revolution for a while, and he hated Sinclair like a, with a passion, and Sinclair hated him. They were absolute rivals throughout the Revolution, and, he, and Wayne always wanted to get out from under Sinclair and be commanded directly by Washington. And at one point he was. He had a great victory at Stony Point in New York on the Hudson River. That's one of his sort of the most famous victories. Um, and that was directly under Washington's command. So they had a relationship going all the way back. But Washington had a relationship with, with really all of his former generals, and he, he went down the list of who should, who should build this army. Now it's 1791, and we have, and in 92, we have, we've got Congress to finally go for this army bill. Who's going to do it? And really, the, uh, it's fascinating to look at Jefferson's notes on that discussion. Like they really didn't feel like they had good options. Well, in, in elementary school, we were taught about Anthony Wayne as mad Anthony Wayne. Yes. Was he mad? No, he was not mad. It's a really interesting uh, nickname that he got there. It's sort of like the Black Snake, his other nickname. Um, uh, he, he could be seriously irascible and certainly sure of himself, but I think the mad thing is a sort of a slam, like the way we, t the way we treat it. It's like he, uh, he, he's con he was considered impetuous by some other officers, but actually he was more like mad for discipline. He was madly focused. And he got the name, I mean, the story is sort of weird and doesn't really add up. He got it from one of his, from a guy who was a driver for him, Jimmy the Drover, he was known as, and he was, he was crazy. Um, he loved Wayne, and Wayne seemed to have some fondness for this guy. And at some point, he was, the Jimmy was arrested for uh, desertion, and he said, oh, my friend Anthony Wayne will get me out of this, and Wayne blew it off, and Jimmy yelled out, oh, Anthony's mad, mad, you know, just, and so the people took it up. But I think his, his, his madness, I see it as a, as a mad, a almost maniacal focus on discipline. And he, he was incredibly patient in his drive forward into the Ohio country. When they put this army together, did they expect that at that point, from then on, it would be a continuing uh, army, a standing army? It was, again, controversial. I mean, the idea is it would, it, it would exist at the pleasure of Congress. It wouldn't be disbanded at the end of any particular um, uh, particular exploit or particular battle or particular victory. So Congress could have gutted it, um, and, and many people in Congress kept, try kept trying to gut it, re reduce the troops to meaningless, to meaningless strengths and, and so forth. So it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't like, oh, now it's permanent, you can't get rid of it. Congress can always get rid of it. Congress right now could, I suppose, get rid of the U.S. Army. I mean, uh, but, so, but, but this was the first time that it existed not solely for an event, not solely for a certain mission, and then to be disbanded. It existed now at the pleasure of Congress. Um, so, and so then how the future looked, I think, was a matter of controversy to the various Congress people. But Wayne did have a mission. Main, Wayne had a mission, uh, even though the army was going to exist past his mission. He had a, a serious mission, which was basically to reverse Sinclair's defeat, to, to take, to repeat Sinclair's, Sinclair's progress up up the Great Miami River, out of what is now Cincinnati, and up toward the Great Lakes, up toward the great headquarters 
of this confederation of indigenous nations that was resisting, uh, that was resisting U.S. incursion, and it had these great victories, um, and and defeat them and build a fort. I mean, that was his mission. Yes. Did they know where they were going, where the concentrations of Indians were, or what the and what was an Indian town like in, in that area? Yeah, quite different from how we often imagine them. Um, the headquarters of this confederation was a very highly developed place. And it's, I mean, it had, it didn't just have tents and so forth. It had log houses. Um, it had miles and miles and miles of cornfield, fruit trees. It was very much under cultivation. There were many different towns that had sort of uh, relationships with one another. Um, so, so this is, again, something that's, that's unusual in, in in, in our, it doesn't fit with our imaginations of what an Indian town would be. In fact, frequently, frequently we say village, but at the time they called them the towns. Uh, white people called them the towns, too. They were very much towns. And they were polyglot, and, and there were many different uh, nations living together. And in fact, then there were British people living with them, helping them out, and there was a French baker. I mean, it was a very sophisticated scene uh, compared to how we normally would, would think of them. And Wayne's goal was to wipe that place out? Yeah, to put it to the torch make clear to the people there that they had no further recourse, wipe it out, largely wipe it out, um, and build, do what Sinclair had failed to do, build for a fort there um, at, what the, uh, at what the people who lived there called Kekionga, which when he built the fort there, he named after himself and is now Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, and not only build that fort, but put a string of forts around and about in order to make, in order to just make it absolutely secure throughout throughout that region. Were there any U.S. forts in the Northwest Territory at the time before he? Had yeah, they had built forts down along on the north bank of the Ohio River. This was the uh, this was the controversial thing to the, or this was the the affront to the native people that you know you're not supposed to be building forts across the Ohio River. This is ours. We want this to be our boundary. Uh, Cincinnati. Uh, there was a Fort Washington in, in what is now Cincinnati, when the settlement was called Cincinnati. There was a Fort Harmer, named after General Harmer, another Pennsylvanian, uh, who had pre he preceded Sinclair in being defeated by the same Confederation. But he had he had built a fort there. They had built a fort there. He named it Fort Harmer. That was um, the settlement there was Marietta, Marietta, Ohio. Uh, so there were forts on the north bank, but the controversy was whether they should be there at all. And then. The, the failure so far, until Wayne had been to build any significant forts, they built some up the line as Sinclair moved forward, but they were completely under attack, not viable really as, as forts. And then past a certain point, Fort Jefferson, uh, Fort Hamilton, you're still like in very southern Ohio, what is today very southern Ohio. They have been unable to establish anything up toward, up toward the lakes. So Wayne was the first to really be able to do that. Tell me about James Wilkinson. Yes, another amazing guy who people should know more about. A, uh, the quick story on Wilkinson is, imagine the command, he became the commander of the U.S. Army after Wayne, but he was Wayne's second in command. So imagine someone that highly placed in the United States Army also being a paid spy of a foreign country, in his case, Spain. Wilkinson was a, a career uh, two-faced, duplicitous person. He was charming, evidently. People liked him a lot. Um, the, the soldiers and other officers, many of them liked him a lot better than Wayne, but he was, an abs he was a spy. He was a spy in the pay of Spain, and he had dreams of, with Sp Spanish help, becoming really the, the lord of some sort of ruler of a sort of an interior empire carved out of Kentucky um, in which he would become like sort of the king of that area. But he was serving as Wayne's second command in the first U.S. Army and doing everything he could every day to undermine Wayne's authority and command. 
What kinds of things would he do? Well, he just sort of formed cabal. In the Wayne situation, he formed cabals of junior officers, and he, they liked him. He was charming. He was gregarious. Wayne, of course, could be very abrupt and brusque and intense. Um, and so he he just started rumors about Wayne. He he wrote to Knox. Uh, Henry Knox was Secretary at War at the time, uh, saying that Wayne was drunk all the time and derelict in duty. He Wilkinson at some point says. He said this even in his own diaries, hoping that these diaries might survive him if he died and he could ruin Wayne's reputation later. He said, this is perhaps the worst general in the history of military activity anywhere in the world. Um, this is while Wayne was actually making these incredible moves with incredible patience that actually paid off in victory in the, in the Northwest. He planted newspaper articles? Is that yeah, he wrote letters to the papers anonymously um, and just generally tried to demolish Wayne's reputation, uh, both on the ground with the officers on the march and in the public, in the public eye, and in Congress, he was working with the political opposition against the army to to, to gut the size of the army. Why yeah. would Spain want a, a spy in the U.S. Army? Spain was uh, Spain had him as a spy before he was even in the U.S. Army. Spain had him as a an agent of Spain, uh, starting in the seventeen. Oh, I'm going to say the late 1780s, maybe. Um, he, I, I can't remember the exact dates when he started working for Spain. He, they, Spain was very interested in threatening the U.S. on its sort of south, on its western borders. Uh, Spain was across the Mississippi. All that territory was Spanish now, and uh, they were very interested in, in carving out pieces of, of the U.S., creating uh, and, and pulling people, settlers from the U.S. to go settle in Spain. They were afraid of U.S. incursion in that direction, so there was a lot of hostility. What became the Louisiana Territory was Spanish? That's right. At that time, it was, it was Spanish, yeah. yeah. Um, so did Anthony Wayne ever catch on to what James Wilkinson was doing? Only really very late in the game. I don't think he really got it until late. He couldn't understand why some of his officers were so... He knew people were talking behind his back. He knew there was this reputation getting out there. He did have great support from Knox and Washington. Uh, when this stuff started coming to light, I mean, Knox wrote to Wilkinson and said, you know, knock it off. Uh, uh, and and they, they, they made sure that Wayne knew he had their support, regardless of what was in the papers. Only later did he sort of twig to what Wilkinson was doing. And at that point, they became bitter enemies. Uh, that's after the Battle of Fallen Timbers, where Wayne, uh, and not, not any real credit to Wilkinson, but Wilkinson, too, was in that battle. And they, they finally succeeded. Did Wilkinson ever get his comeuppance? Um, no. <laughs> he got away with it? Totally, yeah. I would say almost 100%, yes. He ends up with Aaron Burr and that whole crazy expedition, and he, he survives that somehow. That ended Burr's career. Wilkinson commanded the U.S. Army for, for 12 years or so uh, as, as a paid spy of Spain. I have to read this sentence about um, at one point um, when Wayne put his army together, he was around Pittsburgh, and they were training and uh, he wanted to move out of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was too much of a rowdy frontier boom town. Mm -hmm. So Pittsburgh was too rowdy for the U.S. Army. Oh, yeah. If you, you know, you have, you have to imagine Pittsburgh as, you know, just a, there were a, some big, some big, big brick houses, but they were also just mud streets, constantly flooded, and just constant business activity in the fur trade. Lots of different kinds of people, people speculating, people ripping each other off. And, of course, vice was what Wayne was concerned about taverns, prostitution, all the stuff that went along with every Western settlement, even in the founding era where we like to think of our founders as sort of more genteel and uptight and so forth. The Western boomtown thing begins with Pittsburgh, I would say, and continues into Marietta, Cincinnati, and then continued, you know, all the way out West. When Wayne went to put the 
first U.S. Army together. Where did he get the soldiers? They recruited throughout, uh, throughout the colonies. Recruitment was difficult and took a long time. Um, basically, uh, you'd, you're, you, you know, the captains would be recruiting personally. Put, you'd, you'd go into taverns, actually, and other pu pu public places, put up signs, talk it up, put ads in papers, and say, we're recruiting. Here's what you're going to get. Here's your pay. You know, here's your clothing, three squares a day, a little bonus, and you join up. And to a lot of people with very few other options, it was quite appealing. So that, so that took time and effort. I mean, it was, and they recruited, and it wasn't just Wayne recruiting. He was already out in Pittsburgh. Knox was still running a major recruiting effort from Philadelphia. And so, you know, it's in, logistically, I mean, I got fascinated by the logistics of just trying to create this army. I mean, the, the, the different recruiting, uh, the different uh, companies are converging from all over the, the seaboard on Pittsburgh, where Wayne is trying to bring them in, get them s suited up and barracks and building stuff. And like, it's, a, it's just a massive operation. How'd they do it at bringing these, all these disparate people into being an organized army? Well, that was Wayne. That was Wayne. I mean, I think that you can, that's down to him and another reason why you know, he should be better known. I mean, he did it with carrot and stick, as armies then, in those days anyway, operated. I mean, <clears throat> the carrot was he was trying to build actual confidence in the men. In, you know, he trained and drilled and trained and drilled and trained and drilled. Um, at the same time, and, and taught them woodland fighting, and had to, he came up with his own ideas about how to keep armies together in, in forests, where he wants them, in, he wants them in, in lines, but he also wants them in loose order so they can get around trees. He had to come up with a lot of his own ideas. At the same time, he trained and drilled, and he, he taught them security and, and, and how, you, how to not be su surprised. He also used, you know, the physical punishment discipline that was characteristic of all armies at that time. I mean, brutal flogging and sometimes execution. Yeah, you say he executed, was it three people for desertion? Yeah, there's a, there's a scene in which I talk about three, but I think there were more actually executed. But there's a scene in which he executes uh, a group. Actually, in the end, he changed his order and one guy survived the execution because he hadn't, uh, there was a priest there who told Wayne that the guy hadn't, he wasn't prepared oh, to was die. He, he was an word? atheist, so he wasn't prepared to die. He hadn't been saved or come to terms with religion. So, he, so the priest didn't want that guy to be killed. So Wayne changed the order, and the atheist survived. The Battle of Fallen Timbers. How did it come about? Who fought who where? That's Wayne's army, having finally been disciplined and trained. And it was fought in near what is now Toledo, Ohio, just south of there. Um, and on the other side was this great confederation put together by Blue Jacket and Little Turtle, the, the Shawnee Blue Jacket, the Miami Little Turtle, the Delaware Bakongahalis. Uh, at that point, uh, the Shawnee uh, leader, Little Turtle, was very much in command. Um, and it was called Fallen Timbers because it was a blown down, a hurricane or tornado or something had blown through there. And it was just this very, a big thicket, a good place to stage an ambush. But this time, Wayne was prepared to be ambushed, basically. It wasn't like he knew exactly where that battle was going to happen. He just marched those troops into that Indian territory and waited to be surprised. So he wasn't surprised when it finally occurred. How'd he do? He did well. Uh, it's not one of the world's famous, famous battles. It'll never be studied in military colleges from a strategy and tactics point of view. It was very brief. Wilkinson, immediately it was over, was like, oh, that wasn't even a battle. You know, uh, that's, that was Wilkinson. It was probably, for all that, the most important battle maybe we ever fought because it established the United States in what became the Midwest and established for the first time a victory for a U.S. Army. So I don't know, without that, if he'd been defeated at Fallen Timbers, with all this pushback anyway against the Army uh, in Congress, and I mean, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, it would have taken a long time to get a U.S. Army, and his, 
future history of the Midwest would have been totally different. Yeah, there was a British fort nearby. Right? Yeah, the on, British had actually finally done something really dumb, actually, which was to move even forward of Fort Detroit, which was in contact, which they were supposed to get out of, but you know that that was in discussion. They moved forward and built a fort, which they said was the for the protection of the Indians. So it was part of this proxy war idea, and some of the British officials were very excited. They moved forward onto further into U.S. territory. This, unfortunately for them, helped Congress get pretty mad and support the idea of an army. To, to threaten that fort, because this seemed really out, outrageous. When Wayne had his victory at Fallen Timbers, and he sent the, the great confederation that had beaten Sinclair turning and running in retreat, and he followed up with a bayonet charge. This is the first successful U.S. Army bayonet charge. Um, and the Indians go running, and they're in retreat. They go to that fort and demand entrance for protection, and the British commander there barred the door and didn't let them in. So that's the other thing Wayne achieved at Fallen Timbers. As he said, I showed the U.S. troops the virtue of the bayonet, that it works, you know, and I showed the Indians that there's no help from the British. They're going to have to give up. You also say um, that uh, less than a half, mile and a half from the gates of the Fort Wayne camped the Legion of the United States. Within Fort Miami's all afternoon, Major Campbell watched Wayne's troops spread out all over the ground near his post as if in total disregard of his presence. So he's kind of thumbing his nose at the Absolutely. British fort. Why, yeah. why no response from the British? Well, troops? it was tricky. He didn't have or the commander in the fort didn't have orders to fire on U.S. troops. Fire the first. If he'd been fired on, he would have responded. But Wayne didn't fire. He just insulted the guy in the most blatant display. I mean, he just so that so there was a. I mean, it was close because there were officers inside who were begging the commander. Wayne himself, the great insult, and this is like such a macho move. I mean, the great moment is Wayne himself rides out alone on horseback, uh, up to the walls of the fort, and ostentatiously inspects the fort. The biggest insult you can give a commander, and there were officers, he was right within pistol range. There was an officer begging the commander, let me just take him out, come on. The commander was enraged, but he knew he, that he couldn't start a war like that. So it was a total nose-thumbing, yes. Well, what happened next? I mean, uh, the, did the Indians meekly go away, or did the uh, U.S. establish the fort there? It wasn't instantaneously as decisive as that. I mean, it took some doing. Wayne, he left. He, he didn't attack the British fort there. He left, he pulled back, he built Fort Wayne, and he built a string of forts. And that, that time, you know, the, the Indians came back and kind of dogged him. He thought there might be another battle, uh, but there wasn't in the end. And then he basically, at the Treaty of Greenville in Ohio in 1795, dictated terms of U.S. sovereignty in that region to all of those, to all of those nations. And that meant the Indians, they evacuated? He, they moved into the areas that, that he, he, they moved into a land reserved for them. You could call it the reservation, beginning of the reservation idea. They moved onto land reserved for them by a new treaty that Wayne uh, dictated the terms of, which was just a much, much smaller area than they had had before. So they finally, not meekly, but they had, re they recognized they had this time been defeated in battle. So they, there was some respect for Wayne, grudging respect, mutual respect, I would say, between, between, the US, between Wayne and, and his enemy there. And so they moved on to the, re the reserved land, and that's the beginning of what's sort of called the treaty period in U.S.-Indian relations. What happened to Blue Jacket and Little Turtle, the leaders of the radicals? Later, Blue Jacket uh, supported Tecumseh's attempted rebellion during the War of 1812. 
Um, and we know much more about Tecumseh than we do about Blue Jacket, which is funny again to me because Tecumseh never won a battle against the United States, and Blue Jacket won that great a number of battles against the United States. Um, won the greatest one ever, uh, ever the greatest vic Indian victory ever. So that's weird. But he did try to, in his, in his older age, he tried to support Tecumseh. Um, Little Turtle went the other way. He spent the rest of his life trying to foster understanding among white and indigenous people, and he did not support Tecumseh. And in that way, he was often considered by some a traitor to his people. Um, so they, they, they took different directions uh, in later life. What did Anthony Wayne do? He continued to, you know, establish sovereignty in the, what's now the Midwest. He built, he, he, when the British finally did evacuate Detroit, of course, he, he was alive for that, and he went and established U.S., he, he went and established U.S. sovereignty there. That was really the final, sort of the climactic moment, probably, of his career. He came back to Philadelphia. Uh, he was very ill. He had gout. So many of these people were ill. He was, he was kind of on his last legs. He came back to Philadelphia um, and was feted and celebrated as the conquering hero, which was he left Philadelphia having been, having been uh, convicted of election fraud. He came back with this victory and was a huge hero. Um, and then he died at Presque Isle, actually. Um, he died at Presque Isle. How often when you're doing research do you come across something and say, well, why isn't that more, more famous than it is? All the time. I mean, the stuff that I've worked on from the Whiskey Rebellion through the backstory of Philadelphia politics and, and declaration, um, to this story, uh, I just always wonder, why isn't this, I don't know about this stuff until I come across it, but of course, I should say, I come across it because it's known to scholarship. I mean, there's plenty of, of, of scholarship on this stuff, but these stories are not part of our public discourse about our history, and I wish they were more. So from that point on, the U.S. has had an army? Yeah, it's been up and down. I mean, yes, that, from that point on, uh, there was never any question, really, uh, logistically, practically of whether there would be one or not. There's always been issues about how big it should be. I mean, sometimes it's been very neglected. People talk about, like, before World War I, we, you know, we were drilling with broomsticks and so forth. It's not like it's always been full force. Hamilton wanted a huge one. Jefferson wanted a smaller one. You know, that, that battle has gone on, and, and the role of the citizen soldier has changed, and the National Guard uh, role has, has, all of that has happened. But from this point on, this is the turning point, there was never any longer a practical question about whether there would be a federally organized national army. What's your next book? That is TBD <laughs> at this moment. I don't know what my next book is. Well, we've been talking with William Hoagland. He is the author of this book, Autumn of the Black Snake, The Creation of the U.S. Army and the Invasion that Opened the West. Thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.